Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Ozan Ozerk is our guest today. Ozan is the founder of OpenPaid. He is a Norwegian medical doctor, or he was a medical doctor. Now he's a fintech entrepreneur. Uh, OpenPaid provides businesses with easy access to banking and payment solutions to help them grow globally. Ozan is very passionate about helping people get access to banking services, particularly people who live in poorer countries and are sending money across borders. Those folks tend to get overlooked by the banking industry, and Ozan is doing something about it. We talked a lot about different countries like Latin America, uh, uh, Turkey, China, uh, Europe, and the intersection of politics and regulation and fintech. He has a really unique perspective, which I very much enjoyed. If you enjoy the show, please do like and subscribe if you're watching it on YouTube or share it on Twitter. It really helps us to grow. Uh, We're bringing on a a lot of guests in the coming months, uh, almost one every day. And so uh, we really appreciate it if you do share the show to, to other people and suggest guests if you have people that you think would make for good guests. With that, I bring you Ozan Ozerk. All right, Ozan, I'm uh, excited to, to chat with you. Um, you are now running a company called OpenPaid. You started off as a medical doctor. We'd love to hear a little bit about that transition. That seems like a, a fairly unusual transition to go from getting your medical degree to jumping in payments. Uh, was there a moment in time when you realized that you wanted to make that transition or how did that go precisely? Well, I didn't go from medicine to payments. What I did was back in late 90s, when I was at high school, me and a few friends, we were like building computers and then later on programming some basic websites. And then in Norway, that was kind of a test ground for Nokia and Ericsson back in the days. A youngster like us had cell phones. So the cell phone industry and mobile content was quite advanced in Norway. So me and a few other friends, we built a website where we were selling mobile content. Um, And that website kind of evolved into becoming a social networking site. So we ended up building the largest social networking site uh, for kids and teens in Norway back in 2005, six, seven. That was before Facebook kind of came to Europe, or at least before Facebook uh, swiped through the Norwegian market. So as we got into social media, naturally e-commerce was the next step. 
And once you start doing e-commerce, obviously payment becomes a challenge. And even in Norway, where everything is kind of super banked and we have a safe environment to do e-commerce, we realize there are a lot of friction on when it comes to payments. So that was kind of like my backdoor into financial technologies. And in the meantime, I finished my medical degree and had to work as a doctor because in Norway, universities are for free, but some medications, uh, the government have certain expectations that you kind of serve your time. So yeah, so my, my, I didn't go from the clinic to the fintech space. I was doing stuff in the tech space before I ended up in financial technologies. I'm so curious how it actually works on that on that medical side before we jump into anything else. When you finish your degree, it's free. You get a free medical degree paid for by other taxpayers. When you finish, if you did decide that you did not want to be a doctor, would there be a penalty or did they just look no. down upon it? No, no, no. So in order to operate as a doctor in Norway, you have a li- you need to have a license. So uh, before you kind of finish medical school, you get a preliminary license that you can use under supervision of other other doctors. But in order to operate on your own and kind of build your own uh, practice or kind of take the academical path of becoming a more specialized doctor, you have to work at a hospital. Um, And in my days, you had, uh, you had, the government were expecting you to kind of serve certain months at the various uh, hospitals or divisions to certify you. Now, nowadays is different. Now is is like when you finish medical school, you have to apply for a job uh, straight out of university, and you need to work three years to have your permanent license. If you don't do your uh, if you don't do your time, uh, you will not get a permanent license. So all your studies will be kind of a waste if you want to work as MD. I see. Yes, I know the concept. I know the concept of free universities might sound odd um, for a lot of lot of the parts of the world, but in Norway, most education is free, and education is quite good. The quality is very high. Uh, but yeah, Norway is a different society, uh, or the Nordic uh, Nordic countries are very different from a lot of other countries. How do you think that uh, that changes? As I wonder about higher education and and the the ability to evolve when it's paid for by the government, namely when all education is free and available online. And people say someone from Norway was like, "Well, instead of going to school for five years to learn this technique, I'm going to like take a you know six month crash course that's way more efficient and it's completely free and it's online it's from better teachers somewhere else in the world now do you do you see that as a kind of a because that that that's how i understand the problem of higher education funded by the government is it can't evolve in that way as opposed to just free market if there were private education providers then you know they would shrink and other ones would grow Okay, it's an interesting topic. So if I was a programmer, uh, I'm sure doing online courses uh, or taking uh, support from uh, people all across the world would be as beneficial of me waking up and going to a physical building in Oslo to take that programming uh, education. However, there are certain studies like medicine where practice uh, it's a huge part of the education itself. It's a craft. You, you cannot just read about it. Anyone can buy 
the same books that I bought when I was studying medicine. And anybody can also listen to lectures online from universities all around the world. But there are two specific things that are important. First of all, you need to learn the craft, and that means that you need to practice. And in order to practice, you need to be at the hospital. And that hospital needs to have the capabilities to support students like us. It's a very costly and very challenging thing to let people with very little knowledge, aka students, touch and interfere with patients because these are real people that are in need of medical help. So you need to have institutions, and in Norway, that's university hospitals, basically very large hospitals that are integrated with the university, where students like myself can have theory and, and on one hand and then practice on the other hand. It, it's very challenging. So, um, so for medicine, I believe uh, an online study wouldn't be uh, a good solution, but for a lot of other things like music, computing, uh, architecture, and a lot of other studies where theory uh, is very important, maybe then it would work. I think also yeah. the notion uh, notion that I understand, like because I've been to a lot of the US, so I understand the notion between government and private look like two opposites. But in Norway, there is a lot of competition, even if there is government hospitals and government universities. It's very hard to get in. It's extremely hard to get in. Like, uh, only the tip of the iceberg, the best of the best, are able to get into certain uh, studies and certain universities. So you already have a selection. So when you have people which are highly motivated and high IQ and EQ or whatever, or good academical performance entering the university, the environment at the university have a very high level. So it's not like anybody can join in and the level is like mediocre. It's not like that. The competition is extremely high. Mm. So generally you're in favor of the structure of education in Nordic countries, it sounds like? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think, yeah. um, I, I'm not saying that everybody must go to university. I think, I don't believe everybody should go down the academical path either. There are a lot of other jobs and craft opportunities or the way you can make a living that is not related to academical performance. But having equal access to education and also make, making sure that at least your financial capabilities or abilities is not a limiting factor, I think is fundamental for success of any nation. Um, in the U.S., you're very lucky because you're attracting a lot of talent from abroad. People from all around the world wants to come to the U.S. to study. You are one of the largest markets for most things, anything from publishing, uh, publishing uh, academical stuff all the way to the business opportunities. So you have some benefits there. But um, I still think you have a lot of challenges on the educational side. And if you don't do something about it, you will be uh, bypassed by other nations. And it's coming very, very soon. Yeah, 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 I agree. I, I tend to feel on education that the, the rub or the problem with publicly funded education is that it's, it's not, I mean, it really is other people paying for the education of a few and say you were, say you just missed the cutoff, you know, you, they have very high standards, these uh, publicly funded institutions, high standards for who can get in. Well, say you just missed the cutoff. And now your second option is going to some somewhere else and paying out of pocket. That means you're not only paying for your own education, you're also paying for the other people who got in uh, 
through your through your own taxpayer dollars. So I, I tend to feel like that that structure, like the people who are the smartest, who are the highest performing and the most industrious, the people who are the, the most uh, aggressive when it comes to work and getting things done, they tend to be the ones who can pay off uh, high loans, like doctors, engineers, lawyers. So I, I don't know what to think. I mean, I'm not convinced it's the only way, but it does seem like if there's going to be any high financial burden, a doctor, lawyer, engineer would be the the type of person who could pay that off. Otherwise, it would be your average, you know, uh, your hospital worker, your teacher. Those are the people who are paying for the education of uh, the people who do go to schools, go to higher education. No, I I, I agree. I think there are two, way, two, two ways of looking at it. First of all, obviously, if you have a high education, you probably end up in a high paying job, you know, and you should technically end up paying a lot of taxes. So to the point that somebody's paying for my education and then uh, they are not benefiting from it, that's not theoretically true because I should be paying more taxes during my lifetime. So I pay up not only for myself, but I probably end up paying taxes for their children. And the second of all, there are certain um, certain professions that you need in society. You need police officers, you need an army, you need doctors, you need lawyers. There are some professions that is absolutely fundamental for a society to work or uh, to be able to work at all. Uh, all educations and all professions have a role in the society, but certain roles are fundamental for the society to be functioning. So I don't think we should look at it from if it's free and how much tax we pay and what the kind of the cut of is. I think it's more like, does everybody have a fair or equal chance to get an education? And if yes, how good is the education? What is the quality of the education? Because in a lot of countries, including the U.S., I believe education have almost become a business. Universities are run like businesses, and academical performance is the second priority. First priority is to make money. Second priority is to, uh, to get the academical performance up there. So I think you have a handful of universities in the U.S., which is like the best of the best, like they are the index. And the, the, you have a lot of universities and education facilities, which is more like uh, uh, factories. And I don't believe those factories are producing the outcome that uh, U.S. as a nation will need going forward. So, um, but th- then again, U.S. as a society is a very different society from the small, rich Nordic countries. So I'm not judging. I this is just my observation about how things are done uh, in the U.S., yeah, really fascinating to talk to you about this because I don't often talk to people from Nordic countries. So to hear your perspective on things, given that there's a lot of overlap in the culture, there's you know a lot of development when it comes to infrastructure, uh, gov- government attitude, I would say, uh, like the Western philosophy of, of uh, democratic electoral republics. But then there's certainly a difference in how uh, major pillars of industry, healthcare, uh, education, um, you know, maybe, maybe you could argue transportation, those operate in a quite a different way. And they both seem to be pros and cons. So I, I like digging into it to get a better grip as to how you feel about it, as opposed to just what people talk about on mainstream. Um, but let's transition. I I, I, want to hear about what you're working on. So, mm -hmm. Uh, so you, you started this business open paid spelled, uh, O P E N P A Y D. Where were you when you had this concept? Was it a, 
uh, sort of an epiphany moment. And the company's relatively new. You guys are at 124, 125 employees and started in, what, four years ago? So yeah, pretty quick growth. Well, what happened? I'd love to hear wh- how you started it. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, after I was doing the social networking side and went into e-commerce, I started realizing that there were challenges all over the place. It was challenging getting a payment gateway up running. It was challenging to get bank accounts. It was challenging to get settlement accounts or FX services. Like whatever you were looking to do something, uh, there was a challenge. And I couldn't quite figure out why we had this challenge because in Norway, everyone have a bank account. Okay, so the unbanked population or the underbanked population in Norway is almost non-existing. It's very unheard of, at least in the business world, that your business is not banked. Okay, so and if you're not banked, there there is a way to kind of challenge your local bank and progress. But if you look outside Norway or outside the Nordics, at least for most businesses, getting access to U.S. dollar. Extremely difficult. That sounds maybe odd when you're sitting in the U.S., but in Europe, for a business to actually have U.S. dollar uh, access, big challenge, okay? So we will get back to that topic. You, you guys need to do something about that, okay? If not, you're going to lose out. Second of all, maintaining a banking relationship with any bank is either very costly or the compliance is so strict or lack of logic that it's hard to maintain a relationship. And especially if we enter anything in the financial space, financial services, then the bar is so high that innovation will be killed off straight away. So my challenge was that wherever I was looking for a solution, I I met closed door. So step by step, I tried to build something for my own business. I realized other businesses needed the same. And then I, then I turned around and said, listen, I'm not going to focus on my own business as a retail offering, I'm going to focus on my own business as a B2B offering, basically helping other enterprises uh, enable them to do their business. Hmm. So it wasn't happened, it happened overnight. It happened like step by step uh, with all the struggles that came with it. When you highlighted the problem specific to the US with respect to European countries on accessing money by accessing the US dollar, what do you mean exactly? Is it hard to, why, why, I guess, yeah. why would a business yeah. in Europe need US dollar and why is it hard to get? Okay. Um, there might be some viewers or listeners that might disagree, but first of all, US dollar is the key currency for all trade globally. I don't care if you're trading in Turkish lira, Norwegian kroner, or even in rupees. At the end of the day, if you're doing cross-border transaction, US dollar is a default currency for that exchange, for that settlement. Most contracts will use US dollar nominated uh, uh, figures. So US dollar is something you cannot circumvent if you're doing any type of uh, significant business in, in Europe or elsewhere. Uh, we have euro in Europe and we have also a strong GBP and we also have stable currencies like Swiss franc and Norwegian kroners and Swedish kroners. But once again, if you do international business, US dollar is key. European banks are extremely afraid of their US counterparts. So all European banks have one uh, or another relationship with a US bank in order to settle in US dollar and clear, clear the US dollar. I'm not going to go into too much details about how the banking network works, but you have to be a US bank 
to be able to hold the US dollar. And so anyone else that are outside the US have to date and f- make friends with a US bank. And everybody's afraid of that relationship because especially after the financial crisis in 2008, and how the US went after European banks and other banks for tax evasion and a lot of other stuff. Uh, and also challenges around sanction and money laundering and so on and so forth. European banks specifically are extremely afraid of losing their U.S. relationship. So if you're a business in Europe, especially in the financial industry, and you go to your local bank, whether it's Barclays or HSBC or Danske Bank or uh, Credit Suisse or whoever, and you say you want to do financial services and you want a U.S. dollar account, the likeliness of you getting a yes is close to zero. Let's say zero to be, <laughs> to be on the safe side. It's very hard. And even if you get access to U.S. dollar, ah. it will put so many limitations on the activities you can do on your U.S. dollar balance that in reality, you have an account you can't use. It's a big challenge for the European industry. It's a big challenge for fintechs across the world. I don't think people in the U.S. and the U.S. banks are aware of the, of, of, of the significance of that, of that challenge. It pushes yeah institutions like yes. us and banks like us to go to other currencies we are trying to go into crypto other currencies um yeah so we are shooting ourselves in the foot in the western world by by having this challenge yeah i i was just about to use that same analogy it does feel like that right it's like we're making it so we as in i mean we as in the the us banks i should say are making it so difficult and by proxy the us government because the us government impacts many of the restrictions on banks that we see imposed on the western world and europe it it is kind of uh yeah shooting yourself in the foot for sure but maybe it's just a good thing in the end it's hard to say whether things are good or bad because you don't know how they play out when the pressure is so high as a founder to start this bank, uh, that certainly opens up the pathway for crypto, which is nearly instantaneously transferred all across the world 24-7 at a much lower fee structure than banks. What does that start to look like? Are you seeing crypto being utilized as a real competitor to that uh, U.S. banking to Europe relationship? So first of all, let me say that I am a huge uh, fan of blockchain. Uh, I, I run several businesses that are, are in the blockchain uh, or the crypto space. Uh, but I don't agree with the arguments that you are trying to make right now. Uh, I don't believe the fees on crypto are lower. Actually, they are quite high and we need to do something about that. And most of those blockchain and the cryptocurrencies that are in the market today are either very badly governed, so there's a huge liability and risk by using them, or they are so poor technological-wise that using the old incumbent SIFT system will be safer and faster. So blockchain per se have a huge future, but the most of the current payment networks on blockchain and the most of the current cryptocurrencies are not fit for purpose. And I'm happy to deep dive to each one of them. But um, I, I hear this argument very often that blockchain on current cryptocurrencies will solve something that we have right now. In the future, yes. But there are other challenges with the current setup that we need to address in order for cryptocurrencies, stable coins, security tokens, utility tokens to be competing with their twin brothers in the fiat world. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you today. I think I, I was more thinking about it in the future. 
Uh, and even today, I feel like there's there's probably some pathway to making it better, faster, cheaper. But all in all, I mean, it, well, if you talk about the the challenge of setting up a bank account, if if you're a fintech company starting out in you know Europe and you're trying to start a, a bank account, like if you're talking about a zero percent chance of opening up uh, a bank account to transfer U.S. dollars, well. I mean, it doesn't even matter what the price is, right? It could be like $50 per transaction on some yeah. blockchain. It's still better than nothing. Uh, no, I agree on that. When you say you I run multiple crypto... Yeah, so, so... When you say you run multiple blockchain on, companies... Yeah, so we... we yeah, like, go ahead. you go ahead. Next to open, yeah, next to OpenPaid, we are involved in various projects where we have crypto licenses across Europe to provide on-ramp and off-ramp solutions and also payment solutions that are using some kind of stable coin, some kind of blockchain-backed uh, service in, in behind the lines. So I'm, I'm quite confident that, uh, at least my experience, so yes, it takes me like, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to go to one of those major exchanges in the world and open up an account. And technically, I will have a USDT or USDC or whatever US-backed stable coin life, right? But if I don't trust the institution I'm dealing with, or if my counterparty doesn't trust the institution I'm dealing with, or if the counterparty of the counterparty who do not accept the source of funds, you're back to square one. So I can go to Coinbase and open an account and I can send money to your Kraken account. But when your US bank or your Swedish bank receive money from Kraken, will question you left, right, and center and block your account. Even if you received your money in Swedish kroners or euro because you exchanged it at Kraken and paid out, you're back to square one. So there are a lot of the, the current setup, the current players in, in, in the space cannot replace the current incumbent fiat systems. But we are getting there. Uh, the, the fact that people in frontier markets, developing markets, poorer countries can actually go to larger exchanges and larger crypto providers and open an account so they can receive money from friends and family, pay for their studies, pay for medical, uh, medical bills, and so on and so forth. Or people can avoid the high remittance fees that are predominantly uh, in place between the rich countries and poor countries. That's great. So I see a lot of benefits in the mid and long term where cryptocurrencies and blockchain uh, providers can have a real impact. Mm -hmm. Not like speculation and let's get rich tomorrow and go to the moon, but real impact on people's life. But for the Western world, for people in Europe, for most people in, in the US, uh, you're still depending on, on your uh, a good financial service from a traditional banking provider. And, and that's a challenge for a lot of businesses. So you have 125 people at OpenPaid and you started the company three, four years ago. What do yeah. these people do? What, what do you, what are, what's going on behind the scenes? Okay, so OpenPaid, have kind of three pillars. I need to understand. I need to tell you about those pillars so you understand what those people do. Number one, we have a lot of licenses. Okay, without the license foundation, it's very hard to do business on top. So we have licenses, and we have, we have people to look after those licenses. Anything from compliance, risk managers, uh, legal people, people that can deal with the regulators, deal with the clients, and so on and so forth. Regulatory part. Second layer, technology. So obviously we are a tech company. So we have a lot of programmers and not only just coders, but a lot of other people that support the whole product environment. And on top of that, you have the staff that are going out and selling, promoting, and 
handling the request from the clients and also learning about what's happening in the market, coming back to the team and telling them what we should be building going forward. So yeah, so those uh, 120-something, they are all divided into three groups. They're either on the regulatory side, Mm. on the tech side, or on the sales and marketing side. Got it. Okay. And on the on the licensing side, do you feel that the licenses are uh, serving a real purpose and that they're uh, approximately as expensive and time-consuming as they ought to be? Or do you feel like we're in a world where these payment licenses are exorbitantly expensive and time-consuming and don't serve all that much value? It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of a spectrum, the- right? Yeah, on, on the first two, two parts, yes. I mean, obtaining a license today and maintaining the license, keeping the license is extremely challenging. doesn't matter what type of license it is, either MSP license in the US, email license in Europe, a banking license or a crypto registration or whatever. It's very, uh, very difficult. I believe it's too difficult. It pushes a lot of people to operate in the gray zone or out of license. That's bad for the general public. It's bad for the provider because having license means that you're following a set of rules and those re- rules are meant there, meant to be protecting all of us. So I, I rather have people competing in, a, in the same space rather than people cheating around or being forced outside. But yes, it is very expensive. It's very hard to get. Uh, and do I see the real benefit? Well, for our business, we do, because our clients and our partners needs to know that we are playing by the same rules like they do. So having the license means a lot to us, but it should be easier to get obtain a license and it also be, should be easier to maintain a license. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you guys raise money or how, how do you fund the business now? Is it all just based on profit and revenue? Or? No, we, are, we, are actually, <laughs> we are actually in the, uh, in the process of raising money right now. Uh, but uh, until now, we haven't be needed to raise money. We've been very, very lucky. Uh, when I started the business, we kind of we found a sweet spot in the market where whatever we were building was needed by others and people were willing to pay for it in order to get it. So we went break even very quickly and then we went profitable. Um, so we haven't raised money uh, at all, but we are in the process now to raise money because we see that there's a lot of good competition out there and they are, they are well-funded, they're growing very fast. And if we want to do this step-by-step, step, we will not be able to catch up with them. Um, so right now we are in the process of raising money to kind of, um, speed up the growth. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, and so far self-funded, I mean, did you have a big exit and self-funded to get to 125 people requires a lot of capital. I'm, I'm just curious how, if that, we started, uh, we started with just one, we we just started with, yeah, it was just two or three people in the beginning. And then become five, six, seven, and eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. We just we we grew, so it, we didn't jump from like we didn't start with twenty five people, then grew to seventy five, and then one hundred twenty five. We started with three, four people, and then become ten, become fifteen, become twenty, and then we grew. And I also like I had several smaller companies, smaller startups that were doing their own thing in different space within the within the financial technologies. So at some point I said, I cannot have all of those small teams. It's counterproductive. Let's group them together. 
And that's how we created OpenPit. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So, because I was going to say, with no funding in three years to get to 125 people, just seemed like the math didn't add up there. But it was you—you you had mm-hmm. previously existing independent companies that you uh, bulked together under one one umbrella of OpenPaid. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. That makes more sense. Um, and so, where do you spend your where, where do you spend your creative time nowadays? What what sort of lights you up when you think about it the most? Well, I, I'm I'm lucky in this way that I'm, I'm exposed to a lot of the challenges crypto businesses have, remittance companies have, marketplaces have, uh, gaming companies have. So I I talk with merchants all the time. I I talk with other business partners um, in the space all the time. So I get a lot of input about their local challenge. So when I get a local challenge, when where there is a marketplace in India or a crypto exchange in the US, it makes me start thinking. Mm. Okay, got it. What's your what's your process? Like if I'm if I'm working for Ozon, uh, how do you how do you tend to how do you feel like your operating style is unique? Do you first of, you know, first of all, nobody works for me. Nobody works for me. Okay, okay. let's get that straight. We we work together. Okay. So that's okay. the first thing people understand when they come to business. We are a flat business structure. I have my responsibilities and everyone else have their responsibilities. But the hierarchy is very flat. So people are able to take their own decisions and execute and not wait for somebody to approve. It's uh, We are allowed to fail. We, <clears throat> If you don't try, you will never fail. And I want people to fail because that shows that they have actually tried to achieve something. So that's something that we also emphasize. I know we are in a regulated business. So the limit between failure and catastrophe can be very short. So we have to be careful. We <laughs> cannot just back in the yeah. social networking days just break things on the on the go or just just upload a new website or just have a new code released that's not how it works but from from an idea to execution people are quite free to do what they believe is right and we work in small teams where people actually have a say so i think that's also have been the key to our success that we listen very carefully to our partners our and i'm not calling our clients i'm calling our partners because i see the people we serve and give service to, they are our partners because we learn from them as well. So when we speak with our partners and very close to what they do, we can feel their pain. That means that we're adapting that pain and going back and seeing what we have, what we can do to kind of contribute to their growth. Gotcha, gotcha. I have a note here that says you, uh, you or Open Paid together have authored the most extensive primary research report on embedded finance does that yeah. sound right to you yeah well I, I, well, it's, I well i didn't know if there was a lot of other reports out there so if there are not many reports out there we probably are the biggest one uh i'm told it's the biggest one well the report is about uh, a lot of people have heard the term embedded finance uh, embedded finance means that you're taking a financial services and embedding it into a non-financial service, or it could also be one financial service embedded into another financial service. Like when you come to a checkout page of your marketplace, you get a credit line on the go, or you, you pay, pay now, so you buy now, you pay later, or you get an insurance or whatever. So a lot of companies in Europe are familiar with the term. That's kind of the outcome of their research but very few have a strategy or very few have implemented anything around it. Um, so that's something that 
wasn't that surprising to us, but it also gave us, gave us a lot of appetite to engage more with 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 our with our partners, because embedded finance is the future for most companies that are uh, online. If you have a digital footprint, embedded finance is key for your success going forward. So in the U.S., you see a lot of offering about buy now, pay later. Uh, successful companies from Europe, like Klarna from Sweden, have done well in, 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 in the U.S. market. But embedded finance is so much more. It's anything from what Uber is doing, where things are just happening in the background. You order a, you order a, a car. It comes and picks you up and you leave. There is no cash. There is no card. There is no uh, event around payments. It all happens in the background. Got it. So that's when you think of embedded payments, that's what you think of. It's it's acting in the background. Or is that the right definition of embedded payments? Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, ideally, it will only happen in the background. But the key here is that you have an API to API integration where embedded financial services is a financial services you provided to your to your audience and your product and service might not be financial at all. So you're buying an airline ticket and you get a loan on the go. You're buying an airline ticket and you get some kind of insurance or something else in the background or your payments happens without you being typing in your 16 digit card uh, PAN number uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the checkout page. Hmm. Got it. And is that when you, when you, I'm curious your perspective on this, when you look at life in uh, Norway and the Nordic countries, is there a day-to-day difference with uh, say the U S or the UK when it comes to technology um, access to any tools? Certainly the banking industry you said is more consolidated. There's only a few banks there. Are there any core fundamental differences in either the payment industry or the technology landscape that, uh, that many people wouldn't necessarily see or appreciate? Norway and the Nordics are very small markets. Okay. So, Nothing is big here. I mean, it's big in Norwegian um, in Norwegian figures, but it's not big in U.S. figures. And there is not very much challenge on the payment and the financial side in in, in Norway. A, we are very quick to adapt whatever we see abroad, and B, uh, the room to maneuver internally in Norway is quite uh, quite big. So Norway and the Nordics, from a per- payment perspective, for me, isn't that interesting. However, there are a lot of good payment companies coming out from the Nordics, a lot of good innovation happening in the Nordics. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those companies stay in, in Nordic, so you don't hear about them. Uh, the few you hear about, they end up in the US. Um, so that's an interesting thing that a lot of good tech companies are coming out of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, and Finland, and so on and so forth. But they don't have an impact on the world like Cash App or PayPal and so on and so forth. Klarna, obviously, uh, a, a different thing. Spotify from Sweden. Um, TransferWise, I believe, had some Swedish uh, founders as well. So I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying, uh, and I'm sure there are some in da- Denmark also. So if there are some Danish listeners, I don't want to upset our, our Scandinavian uh, colleagues. But the Nordics are a very safe country. Let's look at Turkey, okay? Turkey is a very interesting market. First of all, I believe they have probably one of the most modern banking infrastructures, but it's still a society with a lot of cash. You have millions of refugees coming in from neighboring countries. So you have kind of two worlds running in parallel. 
So on one end, you have big banks that are extremely tech-oriented, more tech-oriented than you can believe, okay? And at the same time, in the same neighborhood, on the same street, you have people that are doing billions of dollars in trade in cash, literally next to each other. So if you go to Grand Bazaar in Istanbul or in the streets of various uh, financial districts across Turkey, you will see the most modern bank where you can access the ATM just with your eyes or your voice. Hmm. At the same time, you have people doing trade with cash or crypto. So crypto is very big in Turkey for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to go into all the details, but blockchain and crypto in Turkey is, is a major industry. I hear people say that crypto is banned in Turkey now and then, and that, that's completely nonsense. So if anybody thinks that crypto or blockchain services are banned in Turkey, they, they, they got the news totally wrong. Um, it's getting regulated, not banned, which right. is a good thing. Right. So, so when you look at developing countries, frontier markets uh, in the US, you see a lot of challenges are regarding remittance. People are trying to send and receive money. You need tech, tech and innovation around that. Uh, you see a lot of e-commerce shops or uh, e-commerce um, providers are struggling to do global e-commerce. It's very hard to get a card acquired that will allow multi-currency acquiring or settle in a way that will make your business uh, profitable. So Nordic is not where I get my inspiration. Uh, Turkey, UK, US, Latin America, the Far East, and Far East, I mean, China, if you've seen what they're doing in China, and there are a lot of other challenges around China, but from the tech perspective and the way they embrace payment or embedded finance, they are another division. So that's where we should get our inspiration from. Yeah, do you, how, how do you stay so in touch with what's going on in other parts of the world, na- namely China? Do you, are you going to China to, to see it firsthand, or are you reading, what are you reading to, to learn about all this? Well, for, first of all, like the, the impact of the good companies, whether it's a Chinese company or a U.S. company or any other nation's company, you feel it on your body day to day during business because they are taking market share. Uh, they are winning deals. They are growing very fast. You see the merchants are pivoting in that direction. So even if you don't go to those countries, if you just read the news or you, or you just talk with your business partners, you will hear that they are taking market share. So if you put uh, the, the, the few Chinese global companies aside, because there are other issues related to them that is that wouldn't function in Norway, wouldn't function in the US, like data privacy and other stuff of challenges that wouldn't be applicable in in Europe. But their adoption of of, of digital payment services, the adoption of KYC and AI, the adoption of both on the merchant side, like on the retail side and the consumer side is very interesting. Because in a lot of countries, the chicken and egg, like you're trying to offer something, but the merchant doesn't accept it. And because merchant doesn't accept it, the retail clients are never, never adopting it. But what you see, at least in China, is that uh, for a lot of different reasons, the merchants, the retail, the consumers, everybody have adopted it in very parallel. So this could be uh, due to political pressure or, or regulation or just reducing cost, or they just jumped over whatever we're doing. So they went straight from cash into the super digital economy. While we in the Europe, or at least in Europe, we're like we're we're king, we're catching up step by step. Um, so obviously, I I I I see competition. I see apps. I see launch of huge cool products I've never heard of. Um, 
so so I cannot avoid the CMA competition. Obviously, I read stuff uh, as well. Uh, YouTube also have, uh, and, and also podcasts like yourself, you learn a lot about new companies and a new way of, uh, of thinking. Um, mm. So it's very, very, very interesting. Yeah. Are there limitations now on the Chinese companies and what they can provision to uh, Eastern, or sorry, uh, Western uh, countries like the US and, and Europe? Are, are, you know, where are we on a, there's certainly a lot of talk of political agitation between China and the Western world and supply chain and and all of that. But does that play out in the financial services sector where there's uh, limitations on who you can offer businesses to or who you can, you know, can you do a deal yeah. with a payments company in China or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so first of all, most Chinese companies have their own restrictions on how they operate outside China. Let's start there. Okay. And let's say WeChat or Alipay or the other company that we, we all know want to operate in Europe or in the US or any other country, most likely they would need to either partner up with a company that have a license or they, they need to get their own license. And you see that with Union Pay that or, or China Union Pay or Union Pay in Europe at least. They, they, they are working the same way as Visa and MasterCard is doing. So they get people to sign up as a member, and then the, they have resellers on the ground. But if WeChat or, or, or some of the other more famous super apps or payment methods would approach a, a merchant in Europe, they wouldn't approach them directly. Usually they have resellers like WorldPay and others, FIS and others in Europe that have an agency relationship with them. So they are reselling their payment solution, the same way they're reselling Got PayPal it. or Apple Pay or Google Play. Got it. It's kind of interesting if you think about the what's going on there. It's like you can, because companies are this, uh, it's like a, it's like a pseudo corporation or a pseudo government in China because they're, they're so closely intertwined with the government. And it's not to say that doesn't happen in other countries. The U.S. has the whole Edward Snowden prison program where the government had, you know, ties with corporations and like, well, we know that is a plausible, logical pathway for government to gain control. And China's just a little bit more overt with their, their goings on and the ability for people to make products and services and then trade, you know, effectively they're just trading, they're building a, a software or some service or product, and they're trading it with people in other parts of the world. The, the ability to do so in software presents such a, uh, a unique insight to a person into a person's life. You know, if you're using a piece of software, I can see so much more about you than if I just sold you a pair of shoes. I can see where you are. I can see how much you're using it, what time of day, who you're interacting with, pulling your social graph. And so it introduces a, a whole nother level of uh, like political um, consideration. If you think about, you know, yeah. TikTok being, I think TikTok is banned now. I want to say in India, I could be wrong on that, but I, I think that there's a lot of uh, talks of like, do, should countries be allowing people to engage on social media networks or use other tools? It's like social media is just one industry where where companies in other parts of the world can gain access to data. But that's of course true in other software services, banking in particular. 
And I, I can see both sides. Like there's not an obvious answer. It's not black and white. You can't just, if you, if you were to allow every, every person in every country to trade openly with, with everybody, then you run up into a situation where, uh, like, like China had with the masks and surgical, uh, not, not surgical, but medical gear. You know, if they're the, if they're the sole producer, uh, of say masks or missiles or bombs or electric chips or some other critical thing for a society to function, then there's a, there's a power dynamic at play, you know, like say Norway, say, say Norway would just, it, it just doubled down on banking. It became like it, you built the best fintech in the world. And everyone's like, look, we're just going to Norway for fintech products. We're going to go to, you know, Hollywood for the movies. We're going to, because this is what happens in society, right? If there was total free trade, then there would be specialization pockets that would just run super deep. We already see the specialization pockets. Like in the US, LA is is entertainment. Uh, the Bay Area is tech. In China, you have um, Shenzhen is where they make like 90% of the world's goods. So there's these pockets of expertise. People tend to cluster together. So I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, uh, but it's something I've been... I think I think the, the key here is Let's start with data protection, okay? So if you look at the Western Hemisphere, you have two schemes dominating it, Visa and MasterCard. So why are they successful? Other than that, they were early entries and were well-funded and have a good business plan and everything else. They went on with the local regulation, okay? So there was very few people in the UK or Norway that had suspicious suspicions that Visa were extracting some kind of secret data and misusing it to 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 have a move on the elections or to control people's mindsets or to have any kind of unfair competitive advantage. So I think if we take a step back and say that if everybody needs to compete globally, we need to agree on the rules. And data protection, whether it's uh, social media and Facebook, how they extract, or Google or Microsoft uh, or Visa and MasterCard, if you can agree on the rule set, then I think it's easier to let other people compete also. The, the fundamental challenge with companies that are Chinese-based that are operating at least in Europe and probably the same challenge in the US is that there are the, the local governments are suspicious that there's something on going on, that data is being collected and shared or misused. And that's the challenge around, around Howie, uh, the, the telco provider or the handset provider, and also our, around WeChat and other type of payment methods. So I'm not saying that the, the, the reason to be suspicious is right or wrong. I'm just telling you this is what is concerning at least a lot of the Western regulators when it comes to product and services from regimes and countries which isn't as transparent as we are, as, as, at least what we believe we are in the Western world, okay? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, because because uh, I'm not going to spend too much discussing it, but I'm not saying it, it, as you said, it's not black and white. It's not like whatever we do in the US or Norway is picture perfect across the globe, but when a Malaysian company comes in, oh, suddenly, oh, we need to see what's under the bonnet. Uh, every company is trying to take advantage of something, uh, and and that's how they're trying to kind of take take uh, win market share. So, um, but yeah, right now there are 
mostly US, larger US players that are dominating the, 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 the payment space. Uh, but I don't believe that will be the reality if you look into the future. Eventually, Chinese companies w- will have a bigger say. Uh, I expect China to have their first central bank issued digital currency. That will have some impact, not as much as people believe, but I believe it will have some impact, especially between uh, on trade between African countries or maybe some Latin American countries, and especially in the Asia Pacific. Because right now, a lot of those deals and remittances and payments for goods and services, even for small and medium-sized businesses, happens through some kind of US dollar exchange. So that will change. Uh, will global countries, global powers change our oil pricing to the Chinese digital currency? Most likely not. But when China maybe trades with countries in the Middle East, they would do it. Um, so things will happen. It will happen in multiple on multiple levels, uh, and the impact will be felt in different ways, depending on where you are in the hierarchy. If you're a payment provider, a consumer, a, a retail, a larger business, smaller business, how much international exposure you have as a business uh, or an individual as well. Hmm. Interesting take. Yeah, I appreciate that. Are there other, uh, you, you, I feel like you have such a good mind for the international affairs. Are there other things you wanted to add in, uh, in respect to, uh, countries? You, you talked a, a bit about Turkey, you talked about China, certainly Norway and the, and Nor, um, Norwegian countries. Um, yeah, I just want to throw it back at you. If there's anything that you wanted to throw out there that's been on yeah, I mean- recently. Yeah, there are a lot of things on my mind because I, t- I tend to think <laughs> various things all the time. But um, I-, I feel overall the current payment system, the payment current banking network, whatever we're, we want to label it, is not catering for the need of today. So let me put it this way. So internet is online 24-7. We do e-commerce 24-7. We buy and sell cryptocurrency 24-7 or we purchase anything around the clock and we we are we live in different time zones. So anywhere in the world, there is a holiday right now. There's a national day. There's a non-banking day. There is something going on that prohibits traditional banks from operating. This this cannot go on like this. We as a merchant, I cannot pray that U.S. doesn't have a national holiday and that my money is not stuck at the German bank because they have a, happen to have a Sunday because I need to settle something in, in Hong Kong that happens to collide with the Chinese New Year. It doesn't work that way. So the current Swift Bay settlement system where, where big banks around the world are clearing some money and they are doing some treasure management in the back, it, it doesn't work. So the, here's where I believe blockchain and cryptocurrencies can have a role. Even if the, they don't clear the money, maybe we can settle it or vice versa. Like we, we need to find a way where I know that my FX exposure is, is what I expect it to be. And whatever I'm paying for the goods is actually the final price that I'm expected to pay. Right now, it's not like that. You have a lot of money in transit all the time. Uh, Currencies are fluctuating. The cost goes through the roof. And and the worst thing is that it it is the poorest among us, the poorest countries and the poorest people in any society in the U.S. that are paying the highest price. It it doesn't make sense. Mm. And it's counterproductive because we are excluding a large base of potential clients and partners 
by high, having these high fees on the ones that are actually needing the service. So we need to work on that. And if you see, and, and remittance is a key thing. I, you and I, we are middle class, upper middle class. So we don't do much remittance in our life. And if we do, we use Cash App or TransferWise or Revolut or whatever fintech app that we are used to. But for a vast majority of people, remittance is the key way for them to pay for their families, send money back home, pay for their children's education, healthcare, and so on and so forth. It's absolutely fundamental that the remittance cost goes down for people to actually survive, not, not enjoy, survive. We, we tend to forget that. And when you look at the cost of remittance from US to Latin America, from Europe to Africa, or from anywhere in the world, from the developed part of the world, back home to where people actually need this money, I mean, they're getting ripped off. Uh, there's, there's no other way of telling it. They're getting ripped off. And, and, and just saying that, okay, let's switch to Bitcoin or whatever, doesn't solve it, okay? So uh, I hear people say, oh, let's go, all switch to Bitcoin and the problem is solved. No, it's not. Uh, Bitcoin is also too expensive to send and receive, at least right now. And you don't have the use cases locally. You cannot go to a hospital in Philippines and pay for your for for your surgery or for your medication in Bitcoin. And even if you did, Bitcoin is fluctuating too much. So I I can go on argue counter argue on that one. But uh, we need to do something about the the global payment system right now. And US need to lead. Uh, you guys are sleeping in class. Like, <laughs> you guys, you, you guys yeah. need to travel outside the U.S. and see how the rest of the world is operating because, yeah, the limitation you're putting on U.S. dollar and the risk that comes with it, the cost goes through the roof. Yeah, yeah. So the restriction on the U.S. dollar is the primary driver. When you say sleeping in class, it's the same feeling as shooting yourself in the foot, where the restrictions on the U.S. dollar, as traded abroad, are so high that it's it's introducing unnecessary friction for. Yeah. Cross border payments. Yeah. 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 Start start issuing. Yeah, man. Well, hey. Yeah. Start start issuing yeah. your own central bank issued US dollar and put some thresholds on it and say that if people are sending like three hundred dollars back home to Nigeria or two hundred dollars to Mexico, like skip the whole KYC part. I'm just saying it straight up. Skip everything. Let people send money back home. If you're afraid that people will finance terrorism with $200, $300, I think I know. That's, that's, not, that's not the problem. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think there, there's a strong, I think if, if it's like zero to 10, uh, 10 being the most, you know, 1984 George Orwellian oversight that we, we want to, yeah. not move towards. It feels like we're like after, after nine 11, when the twin towers went down and the Patriot act was introduced, the bank secrecy act, it's like the pendulum just went ding. It just went, Hey, and it makes sense, right? It's like people in the U S didn't feel safe. And so we said, Hey, let's get together and f- make sure that the TSA pre-check takes off your shoes and make sure they check every crevice to make sure you don't have a bomb in the plane. And also that terrorists aren't going to be funded through every bank. So every transaction on every bank in the financial system in the world has to be able to be monitored and traced back to somebody. There's a lot of moral roots in that, but man, I'm on your side. It's like part of the big reason why I do this podcast is I like asking people about their, where, where they think we are, we in the Western society on the uh, regulatory compass. Like, are we properly calibrated here or are we getting off track? Because 
how we're off, we're off track. We're off track. So we're off. Yeah. Track. And yeah. because we're off track, we are not getting safer. We are getting more unsafer. I mean, uh, we would be insulting any anyone with a bad intention would get insulted if we believe that we could stop them just by kind of querying two hundred dollar transaction from I don't know, from Dubai <laughs> or from US to Mexico. I mean, uh, we can laugh about it, but impact you would see in the yeah. Middle East among poor people in Africa and Latam and also no, in the sad. Far East that all of the, all of these restrictions that we're putting are put, pushing people towards cash. Cash is very expensive. It's far more dangerous. It has more privacy. It's another topic, but it's, it is not fair. It's not fair. Hmm. I concur. Yeah, sad. Well, I'm glad we talked about this. You know, there are people listening to this and it does change the direction of people's mindset, which I'm, I'm a big believer, like just put your ideas out in the universe, let it ripple. And then, you know, that's, if you're not doing that, then you can't make an impact, but you have to just put the ideas out there, make compelling arguments, and then they stick. It's like maybe some lawyer listens to this and 10 years from now, they're working in a Supreme Court case. And they like, you never know, you know, you never know how the world bends and turns and twists. So thank you so much, Ozan. I really enjoyed your perspective on things. I, I, I appreciate your, uh, you know, perspective is coming from Norway and everything you've done. So congrats on all the progress. Are you uh, online? Do you write or tweet or have a social presence online? Uh, I don't use social media. <laughs> I don't use social media. I, I just started writing for Forbes. I think I have one article at Forbes uh, at the moment. Um, I am pushed by my team to start doing something, tweeting or doing something on LinkedIn or something similar. Um, yeah, I, I'm in a thinking process. I have, I'm coming <laughs> from social, social networking background. I, I know how much digital footprint you leave. And I also don't want to spend too much time on the, on the trolls online. Uh, that being said, um, I, as I mentioned, I have been starting to write for Forbes and I will probably keep on doing that. But I mean, I'm happy to talk to anyone. Uh, and if somebody wants to publish something together with me, I'm happy to co-write with them. But yeah, um, yeah, I don't have a Twitter that I could like <laughs> address it to. I don't have any followers. That's all good. Um, yeah. Yeah, you don't need it. Good for you, man. You've accomplished a lot without it. So keep keep chopping wood. Thank you. All right, take care, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.